Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The show of support from you, our valued listeners, has been overwhelming. You've already raised enough to pay for almost a year's worth of episodes of this show. If you can afford a little something, please click the link to the GoFundMe in the show description. Thank you so very much. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheompodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back David Lee for a discussion of his film, The United States vs. John Lennon, to kick off our 18th season of Let It Roll. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're welcoming back David Leaf to discuss his film, The U.S. versus John Lennon, which he co-directed, co-wrote, and co-produced with John Scheinfeld. David, welcome back. Great to be here. It's, uh, it's January, meaning that it's a new year, so happy 2023 to everybody. Indeed, indeed, and, and uh, maybe war is over if we want it, but... Probably not. Actually, it's not. So, but um, uh, yeah. So this film, this is a to me, this is like the last major piece of John Lennon iconography to be released while the baby boomers were still the dominant dominating the cultural narrative with help from Gen X. Is that how you see it at this point? Um, I, I guess looking back, um, that's a good way to that's a good way to to see it in perspective. I wasn't thinking of it at the time. Uh, the film actually was was born in part out of my experiences in college while this was all happening to John Lennon. So so it it uh, it just took a long time for me to get the the uh, the, the industry capital to, to to get it made. 
And how did it come together? And how did you and John uh, Schoenfeld work together? And how, and what's the best way to say his name? Scheinfeld. Yeah. Scheinfeld. How did you and John work together, co-directing, producing, screenwriting? Well, that's 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 a lot of big questions all in one. So let's let's start with the origin of the film, which was uh, I went to George Washington University in in D.C. and my dorm was. Uh, five blocks from the White House. I think it was it was either Abby Hoffman or uh, one, Rennie Davis or one of the big radicals said George Washington was the most strategically located campus in the country to launch big anti-war demonstrations from. And so I was there starting in 69 and there were some very, very big demonstrations. And and I, I had experiences that, that made no sense for somebody who had studied the Constitution, uh, we we were getting tear gassed. We were getting chased by riot police. Uh, I remember waking up one morning, the day of a big demonstration, and opening my dorm uh, window shade, which faced Pennsylvania Avenue at 21st Street. And it was either the 81st or 82nd Airborne Division was was getting out of armored vehicles to surround the campus so that we couldn't get to the demonstration. Wow. I remember turning turning to my my roommate and saying, where do we live, Venezuela? What is going on? And of course, what was going on was something that has been very familiar in recent years, which was the government stifling dissent, which is what they were doing to John Lennon. They did not want somebody with such a powerful voice saying what he was saying. And, you know, as, as a Beatle nut in the 60s, the Beatles were, were my religion. Um, I remember going to see Let It Be and feeling like I was watching my, my family divorce on screen. It was like, what's going on? And, uh, and of course, they went their separate ways. And it was, it was heartbreaking. I mean, I'd seen the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show when I was 11. So suddenly they weren't the Beatles anymore. Uh, but as ex-Beatles, they made very powerful statements, each in their own way. And, and John, of course, uh, was the most political political one of them by far. I mean, Paul's, Paul did give Ireland back to the Irish and things like that. But uh, John and, and Yoko were relentless in their, their campaign for peace, which made all the sense in the world. You know, as he says in the film, you kind of, there are two products, war and peace. We're selling peace. And um, so that, that stuck in my head. And we really hated Nixon and his criminal administration. And I don't use that phrase lightly because dozens of them went to prison. The vice president resigned. Nixon resigned. So this was a bad, bad time in American history. And in my head, it just it just it stayed in my head. And then in the, in the 1990s, when I was pitching projects, um, I, I came up with a, an idea called the Secret War Against John Lennon. And it was on a list of, of things I was pitching and not selling. It was it was going to be a series: the Secret War Against John Lennon, the Secret War Against Lenny Bruce, the Secret War Against Billy Holiday, etc. Um, and, and then uh, a book came out called Give Me Some Truth, and suddenly it wasn't a secret anymore. It was kind of like everybody knew what the government had done 
to John Lennon. So so I couldn't call the film The Secret War Against John Lennon. Uh, around 2000, right after I did a, John and I did a, a documentary on the Bee Gees called This Is Where I Came In, available at, at YouTube. Because uh, most everything we've done is no longer available uh, on DVD unless you're buying at collector's prices. But um, the Bee Gees documentary came about um, because I had written the Bee Gees authorized autobiography uh, back in the 19th, late 1970s. Had been in touch with them through the years, had worked with them off and on through the years, and, and had their trust. And I called their manager and, and said uh, to, to Carol, I said, what about a, uh, any biography on the Bee Gees? And um, she said, okay, see if you can sell it. And in A&E biography, we did, it had to be two hours to tell their story. And I remember when we turned in the first cut, the head of uh, A&E biography said, the, 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 the Bee Gees are in this too much, but we need to hear other people talking <laughs> about them. And I, I said, I said, she said, it's an autobiography. I said, yeah, the reason your series is called biography is because most of the subjects you do are dead or don't want to cooperate, uh, which was kind of a smart alecky thing to say. But at any rate, she, she let it, let it be. And the film came out. And one of the people who was uh, very important to the financing of that film was Steve Sterling, who worked with the home video company that uh, was releasing the, the DVD. And um, afterwards he said to me, David, uh, it was great working with you. What, what uh, you have any other projects that you have in mind? I said, yeah, I want to do a documentary about John Lennon and, and how the government tried to suppress him. And he said, do you know Peter Shukat? And in my naivete, I said, who's Peter Shukat? And he said, well, he's, He's the Lennon estate attorney. He's Yoko's attorney. Let me introduce you. Uh, so on my next trip to New York, because I always I would go to New York three, four times a, a year to pitch to the to the various networks. And on my next trip, I went to to the to see Peter Shukat. Uh, the name of the law firm was Shukat Arrow, um, and, and Alan Arrow, his, his partner, had been Simon and Garfunkel's attorney for, for, for a decade. Gives you an idea what kind of veteran attorneys we're talking about. These are real serious music industry attorneys. And uh, we went into his conference room. I can picture it. And he says, so tell me about this movie you want to make. And I told him and he says, well, you know, that's all public domain, David. You don't, you don't need our permission to use that. And um, I, I kind of smiled and I said, well, actually I, I do. I said, because one, I'm going to want to use music and you're going to be the ones licensing the music. Two, I'm going to want access to the film archives. And again, that'll come from you. Three, I, I want to use, I want to interview Yoko for the film. And four, I never do anything that isn't authorized. And uh, he said, good answer. It was like I was on that old game show. Um, was a good answer, good answer. And so he introduced me to a, a member of his firm, Jonas Herbstman, who became my day-to-day -day, uh, contact and collaborator at, at the law firm on, on how this was going to happen. And um, it took a while before I got to meet Yoko. 
because Yoko was going to decide whether this film was going to be made or not, or at least whether it was going to be made with her participation and cooperation. And, um, you know, Jonas, very, very, we became really good friends. Uh, and he said, I'm never going to tell you what to do. I'm only going to tell you what's gone wrong in the past on other projects and take from that what you will. So it was great. He was telling, he was telling me what, what landmines not to step on, which was pretty important. And finally, I got the call that um, Yoko was ready to see me. So uh, I flew to New York. And I remember clear as day getting out of, getting out of a taxi at the southeast corner of Central Park West and 72nd Street. And I'm standing, it was a rainy, cold winter day, and I'm standing catty corner from, from the Dakota with an umbrella. And I'm looking across the street thinking to myself, I've got to walk across the spot where John was murdered and then convince Yoko to let us make this film. And let's take a quick break right here. And I want to play a song from the period where the film starts. And this is when John Lennon starts to get weird, or at least publicly becomes weird. This is the first take of Tomorrow Never Knows. that was the original long unreleased take of tomorrow first take of tomorrow never knows which came out on the beatles anthology in the late 90s so back to your story you're about to walk across the street into the dakota to meet the mighty and great yoko ono well tomorrow indeed never knows because this is this is the moment of truth and 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 i'm standing there nervous and i realize if i go in there with that in my that this is a, an intimidating woman that I'm walking across the, 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 the sidewalk where John got shot. I, I'm not going to walk in there with the right frame of mind. So I kind of spun myself. And I said, no, no, you're going in there to tell her story in which she's a, one of the heroes. And David, I'm talking to myself, you love meeting celebrities. I spun myself. Uh, that night when I was having a, a drink with a friend of mine in the industry, he said, oh, you had a moment of Jubu. I said, what's that? He goes, Jewish Buddhism. <laughs> so so I, I walked across the street and uh, checked in downstairs at the, at, the, at the reception area and got in an elevator and went upstairs. Jonas, uh, Jonas uh, Yoko's attorney was already there. Um, so I, I rang the doorbell and. Yoko answered very graciously, hello, just asked me to take off my shoes and followed her to where we would have all our meetings, which was in the kitchen. And along along that relatively short walk, I, I glimpsed the white piano sitting in a room. And I was like, oh, my God, that's the piano. And then it's like, you know, this wasn't a museum. This was really where it happened. So we sat down at the, at the kitchen table and, and 
Yoko said, so tell me about your movie. And, and I told her about how I wanted the, the opening sequence that I had in mind, which um, honestly, I'm not sure whether it was give peace a chance or imagine, but what I, what I had, what I told her was I wanted to get a bunch of celebrities to, um, to read the lyrics and we would intercut them. And then Bono would be the last celebrity reading the lyrics. And as he finished reading the lyrics, the piece of paper would turn into, into flames and it would go up and it would form the title of the film. And, and she was like, Oh, like, like in Germany in 1936. And she, she liked, she liked that imagery. She liked feeling that, that, that John was being silenced. And so we spoke for well over an hour, about an hour and 20 minutes about the movie and what we would need from her. And, and, and the agreement was that the film would end with John getting his green card. And it's like, okay, John, John gets his green card. That's the end of the story. And uh, Jonas and I got in the elevator to go downstairs. And um, I, as, as we're going downstairs, I said, how do we do? And he, he laughed and he, he said, uh, if it hadn't been going well after about 10 minutes, she would have said, uh, um, Jonas, don't we need to be down downtown at 1130? David, it was very nice to meet you. Good luck with your movie. And, and that would have been the end of it. So I, I had, in John's word, passed the audition. And that's a big one. And, it's a big, well, it's the, it's the biggest audition there was going to be. Um, now, the next question became getting financing for the film. Um, I had just uh, written, produced, and directed uh, Beautiful Dreamer, Brian Wilson and the Story of Smile, which came out on Showtime in 2004. And it was, it was well-received. And it was, a, it was a big step up from A&E biography uh, in terms of budget, in terms of everything. And so I, I was... I started getting meetings uh, with through my agent with the documentary divisions at uh, big studios like Paramount and Lionsgate. And I and I remember if you can picture this, I'd walk into the room, and and the executive would listen be listening very politely, but kind of slouched in his seat, and and and. He or she would say, "Well, David, that's you know, that's great. That'd be a great movie. But how are you going to get Yoko's um, permission?" And then I'd say, "Well, we we already have that." And then they would sit up very straight, and it became <laughs> a very serious, very serious conversation. And uh, it was at one meeting. I think it was with Paramount, where I was describing the film, and I was saying, "You know, think of think of those old-fashioned posters for boxing." matches think, think of it like it's the u.s versus john lennon and as soon as i said that i thought oh that's going to be the title of the movie um it, it, it wasn't at a meeting where, where it was sold but that became the title i was pitching going forward and the lionsgate bought it lionsgate great great partners on the film uh, vh1 became our, our television partner and uh, we had the budget to to do what we wanted to do and and I think that's very important to the story. It sounds, you know, 
listeners might be going, why are we hearing about the making of the film? But if one point I want to get across is that Yoko Ono has been an incredibly powerful steward of the John Lennon story since their marriage, but especially, obviously, since his death. And, you know, she went toe-to-toe with McCartney and Harrison and Ringo to a lesser extent about the making of the anthology and made sure there were, I mean, they literally counted how many quotes were from John Lennon in the anthology book and in in, in the anthology documentary. She is an incredibly powerful person who has, I think, done a brilliant job of, and I'm going to say creating the mythology of John Lennon. And I don't mean that it's not true. I just mean that it's taken on a resonance. And especially from, say, 1980 to about 2010, it had this cultural resonance where he was a secular saint, effectively, from the time of his murder. And Yoko was responsible for that through a series of brilliant PR moves. I worked in PR at a medium high level for a long time. And I've known people who have done case studies on the way she controlled the message, which is an amazing turnaround from what we're about to talk about after I cue my next song, which is how weird John and Yoko were in the late 60s and why they built up this kind of resentment that would lead the government to do what they did. And this is a little bit more weirdness from John Lennon while he's still with the Beatles. This was an unreleased track from the White Album, What's the new Mary Jane? She looks as an African queen. She eating 12 chapatis and cream. She tastes as Mongolian lamb. She coming from Aldebaran. What a shame Mary Jane had to pay that party. And that was What's the New Mary Jane, a John Lennon track that Paul McCartney and George Martin and George Harrison on veto from including on the White Album. And I'm just trying to give a taste because you start the movie with the point at which John Lennon suddenly goes from lovable mop top to dangerous weirdo. And I'm talking about the we're bigger than Jesus incident. That's not exactly what he said or exactly what he meant either, but that's how it was taken. And it triggered ugly, ugly riots across the United States when it was put out. Danny Fields put it out in Datebook. It was originally put out in a Maureen Cleave article in the London Evening Standard, which is, you know, weekend, serious thought thought piece. Nobody's reading the fine details. And even if they did, nobody in England really cared. But when it was trumpeted across the front page of an American teen magazine, Suddenly, the Ku Klux Klan in Memphis has taken a personal interest in this. You know, crew-cutted DJs across the South are organizing Beatle bonfires. As a fan, and, you know, what was your experience of suddenly seeing John go from, you know, the mop top behind I Want to Hold Your Hand to this incredibly controversial figure? You know, it's, it's, it's a good question, and I have to plead uh, ignorance. In 1966, I was just buying Beatles records. I mean, it's it, it was no more than that. Uh, and, you know, th- they had gone sort of from omnipresent on television to not present. We were suddenly getting promo films. But it was thrilling every time there was a record. 
That's that's all we cared about, and we really, you know, I I grew up in the New York area, so there there was nothing, none of that really seeped into unless you were cool enough to to be reading date book, which was 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 not on my radar. I, I was still reading the sports pages mostly, and so so we didn't really know about how how the evangelical southeastern part of the country was was going after John Lennon. And it kind of presages what's happened in America in, in the last, you know, 50 plus years. Uh, John, John was maybe the, maybe the first target, but not certainly not the last. Uh, it, at any rate, it, it didn't uh, affect me other than the knowledge that, you know, suddenly they weren't touring. They didn't even announce that they weren't touring. I mean, tour, touring was, was so over my head. I, I remember when the girl next door, literally the girl who lived in the house next door, she said she was going to see the Beatles at Shea Stadium. And I had been to Shea Stadium for baseball games. And I was thinking, why would you go to a concert at a baseball stadium? <laughs> I mean, that, that's, how, that's how dumb I was. I, it just was, it was like, it, it made no sense. And of course, it, it had nothing to do with seeing the concert or hearing the concert. It had to do with being in the same space as the Beatles, 99.99999% of the entire world never was in the same space as the Beatles. We saw them on television. We heard them on the radio. That was as close as we came. So we, we never saw them. Uh, people just didn't, didn't get to see them. So, so when they stopped touring, it, it didn't change my life. Uh, and the White Album was strange enough w- without What's the New Mary Jane, which I think I heard for the first time in 1974 at, at the very first Beatle Fest in New York. Yeah, the, I remember how hard it was to hear that stuff before the anthology came out, and there would be Capitol would occasionally talk about releasing, you know, the unreleased Beatles tracks, and then the Beatles would sue them, and they wouldn't do it. But <laughs> back, back to our story. So a couple years later, though, it had to have become obvious that things were getting weird when John's spending more time in public with Yoko and they're doing this stuff that, you know, a lot of people just thought of as completely pointless and absurd. These bed-ins for peace and the bagism press conference, the war is over if you want it campaign. Can you kind of describe what they were doing and how it was seen by the hip or the young public and how it was seen by the old public? Well, the the old public just you know thought they were to use the British word bonkers. Um, the young people loved the the, the peace that obviously give peace a chance became quickly became an anthem. Uh, the live peace in Toronto concert, big deal. Um, the the nude album covers was just like what the heck is this? I mean, it's just like head shakingly odd, as was the was the the music on on the early John and Yoko albums. Uh, it, it made no sense to 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 somebody like me who who if we we call me a a typical avatar of of popular music who listened to top forty radio and then FM radio. It it, it was like, what are they doing? The the bagism was like, what? It, it just. It just sounded strange. It it, it read strange. I, I remember the Rolling Stone interviews and, and with with John, and it, and it was heartbreaking to hear him saying what he was saying about the Beatles, 
Um, it was heartbreaking to hear how do you sleep, and then Paul come back comes back with dear friend. I mean, it, it was just it was it, it was as I said earlier, you know, seeing them in Let It Be was like seeing your family break up on screen. Now it's now it's a nasty divorce. So it was really it, it was really terrible. I you know. Remember, I was fortunate enough to be at Madison Square Garden when John played with Elton John. And I was only there, I was going to go to one, I always went to see Elton John when he played. And I was going to go to one of the shows and a friend of mine in the industry who was in the know said, go to the Thanksgiving show, don't go to the night before. Because he knew what was going to happen. Wow. Um, and and um, it was, I was screaming like a, like a, a teenage girl. When, when John was introduced, uh, I, I get goosebumps just thinking about it. And that was his famous uh, uh, final live performance when he had recorded uh, the song, Whatever Gets You Through the Night, It's All Right, with Elton John's help. And they had made a bet at the time. Lennon's commercial fortunes had been on the ebb for a few years. And Elton bet him it would be a number one hit. And Lennon said, if it is, I'll play live with you. And it was, and he did. And he, he sang, I, I, I'll, uh, I saw her standing there among others, but sang a Paul song as well. So well, pretty, it, go ahead. It was amazing. It, it, when he introduced it, it, it was hard to understand how, what he was saying before I saw her standing there. I, I think we heard it as we're going to do a song by an old strange lover of mine called Paul. Is, is what it sounded like, <laughs> and, but it was it was it was thrilling to hear. I, I saw her standing there. It's a it's a Beatles song. I mean, they did they did Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, but they did Elton's arrangement of it. But so to hear a Beatles song done just as if it were the Beatles, with 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 twenty thousand people in Madison Square Garden all going woo with that at that moment, uh, was as is is great a, a, a concert moment. As I'd had up till that time, uh, it would it would be equaled and I guess eclipsed by the first time I saw Paul on on the Wings Over America tour in '76. I went all three nights he played in L.A. and and that was you know that was two two hours plus of that kind of excitement. But there was a long way between bagism and give peace a chance and john's final concert appearance and in in that period of time you know he puts out his first solo album the plastic ono band which for a beatles album doesn't sell all that well it's very well regarded critically it's still regarded as some of his finest work um then he puts out the imagine album very much kind of wanting to reclaim the throne. It is a massively successful album universally beloved featuring his his anthem um imagine and before things get too weird let's hear from our sponsors because i know they're going to be everybody's going to want to be associated with the crowd of radicals that Lennon and yono yoko ono are about to take up with hello pantheon podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right. So John Lennon has recorded the Imagine album massive success he's working with basically all the beatles except paul i mean you've got george is on the album ringo's on the album klaus Foreman is sitting in there playing bass plus this a group of associated musicians that had gathered around george and ringo for their session albums but then he decides to move to america and who meets him at the airport jerry rubin and abby hoffman or some combination wow. thereof and i think david peel who was uh, best known for his uh, hit, Have a Marijuana, his underground hit, Have a Marijuana, uh, meet him at the airport. So he's immediately, and you know, John has been a peace activist, but he's also the guy who's saying, you know, if you're going to carry a picture of Chairman Mao, nobody's going to make it with you anyhow. And was seen as kind of, you know, a liberal centrist, not a centrist, but a, a left-leaning liberal, but not a radical. And suddenly he's taken up by... The Yippies. I mean, you know, these guys were part of the Chicago Seven. They were architects of the um, civil unrest in Chicago in 1968. They stood trial with Bobby Seale uh, of the Black Panthers for that. Your impressions were when John first took up and, and suddenly was, you know, given the clenched fist and spouting slogans and doing benefits for people like John Sinclair. Well, the... the uh... You know, living in New York, we we got uh, the the benefit he did with uh, with Geraldo Rivera at Madison Square Garden, so he was doing benefits. Um, John, uh, the, the place where it really turned for me was sometime in New York City, which was like, what? Where are the songs? I'm a melody guy, <laughs> and it, it was like. Where are the songs? And they—that's—that's that's where the slogans uh, really 
you know, felt extraordinarily radical. And this is at a time, um, it came out, I think, in June of 72. In June of 72, I was at Madison Square Garden to see a, a fundraising benefit for, for Senator George McGovern, who was running for president, because he was saying all the things I wanted to hear. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a radical. I was a, 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 a liberal. And, and I understood some of the things that he was saying, I, you know, in Attica State, I knew what he was singing about, but it just, it, it just, yeah, I think you phrased it, you used the phrase spouting slogans. And that's what the, this whole thing, and he's hosting the, the Mike Douglas show, or he and Yoko are co-hosting the Mike Douglas show for an entire week. I mean, it's just, it was, it, none of it made any sense. We didn't know what was going on, or at least I didn't know what was going on. I was, you know, I wanted to hear good music. So Imagine had been, you know, kind of him reclaiming, you know, the, the, hey, I can make a great album. Because the albums prior to that were like one and done. You'd listen to it once and it was like, okay, I don't need to hear that again. Um, and, and suddenly with Imagine, that turned around 180 degrees and now back with um, sometimes it's like, okay, you lo- you've lost me. I, I, I don't know what this is supposed to be. Um, I mean, I knew who Angela Davis was. I, I, I was you know, very interested in what was going on in the world. Um, John Sinclair was, was a little off, you know, our, our immediate radar. But, but none, none of this, you know, radicalized me. It just made me shake my head and go, okay, I don't need to listen to that album again. Yeah, I think that was a pretty consensus reaction. And to this day, critics um, still, you know, mark that album as a basically a beginning of a serious decline in Lennon's artistic capabilities. And the sloganeering on it is, yeah, it's like you say, it's simplistic and, I mean, it's basically everything. It's like the worst Phil Oaks album you could imagine. I mean, it's like everything <laughs> that, and I love Phil Oaks and no disrespect, but you know, it's, it's every, it's the worst case of, of turning music into just topical sloganeering without, um, you know, and the band elephants memory was not nearly the caliber of musicians that Lennon had played, was used to playing with and, you know, very, very big change, but this gets not just the attention it doesn't just befuddle his liberal pop music fans. It also brings him to the attention of some very serious and sinister people. And I'm thinking about some of your interview subjects for the book, people like G. Gordon Liddy and others who are involved with operations like COINTELPRO, which was an FBI operation that's later been documented to have harassed, uh, surveilled, and in the case of Fred Hampton in Chicago, even murdered. Uh, Black Panther leaders and other radical leaders. What happens once John and Yoko are seen suddenly in that dangerous category? Well, we don't we don't know that that's happening. Um, that's that's you know why the book um, "Give Me Some Truth" was so important. Um, the, what what we know is he's not putting out great albums. Now I'm in school in D.C. as I said before. And on Monday nights, we're going to the Howard Johnson's on Monday nights, which is across the street from the Watergate, where the break-in took in, took place. And at the 
from what I read later, at the phone booth, if people remember what phone booths are, at the phone booth in the Howard Johnson's is where envelopes of cash were being left for payoffs. We knew nothing about this. But we're reading in the Washington Post something's wrong. And I'm working – the first presidential campaign I work on is, is George McGovern's. Everything he is saying is right from my point of view. And he loses 49 out of 50 states when, when the election happens in the fall of 72, which was dispiriting to say the least. Uh, it wasn't until you know Woodward and Bernstein unraveled um, what, what what came to be called Watergate that we became we became aware of how sinister uh, the the government's operations were, and it was pretty bad. Um, you know now now we're covering the period where John has has left. New York on on the so-called lost weekend, which I guess was about 14 months, and he's he's put out mind games and uh, you know he's he's working, but he's he's not on the on anyone's radar for anti-war activity. He's he has stopped. Um, so so kind of context is so important. You mentioned Fred Hampton, and. It's it's so vital to telling this story uh, in the film as to to understand the the, the times that we were living through, uh, and and that's why I interviewed Noam Chomsky because because he could contextualize it. Uh, Gore Vidal, the, the great novelist and historian, you know people like that who really could put this all into perspective. Because telling John and Yoko's story wouldn't wouldn't really make a film per se without that we had to we had to know what was going on we had to hear from angela davis and g gordon liddy and what was it like to work with g gordon liddy because he was totally unrepentant um right winger to his dying day unrepentant is the exact right words you know you asked me early how did john and i work together we divided up who we were going to interview and G. Gordon Liddy was one of the one of the interviews I was doing. We shot the film on what's called green screen because we weren't sure what the backgrounds were going to be at that point in time. And uh, when when Gordon Liddy sat down in front of the green screen, he he looked he looked over his shoulder and he said, "What are you going to do? Put a picture of Satan behind me?" And I said, "No, probably." I, I said, "No, probably uh, Richard Nixon." And he says, "He shook his head." He says, "Oh, that's okay." In my mind, Nixon was Satan. So <laughs> it's all in the interpretation. And Steph's <laughs> telling me I need to, to get another song in here. So excuse me while we hear uh, "Give Peace a Chance" from the live Toronto concert in 1969. And that was the Plastic Ono Band from their live debut featuring Eric Clapton. 
uh, in Toronto at the Live Peace Festival in Toronto doing Give Peace a Chance. And this is kind of the good John and Yoko that people liked, the version of, say, Don't Worry, Kyoto, Mommy's Only uh, Looking for Her Hand in the Snow, which featured 10-some minutes of Yoko screaming, wasn't quite as popular with the crowd. Um, but back to, to, to the FBI and so forth, when Lennon first started talking about being surveilled by before the you FBI... Ask your, before, you ask your, before you ask your question, let me tell you that when, when I'm interviewing Gordon Liddy, you're trying to you know, ask your questions in a way that doesn't sound insulting. So either after the second or the third question, he stops, he goes, look, you know who you are and I know who I am. So just cut the crap and just ask your questions. <laughs> so he, he, he we'll, we'll compliment him by saying he was no nonsense. That's the best I can say. Yeah, he had a working relationship with a number of, of left and liberal journalists, including uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who had an odd love-hate, respect, disdain relationship for Liddy. Um, and, you, and there's a number of FBI figures. It's interesting. Some of the agents seem repentant, but Liddy and at least one other one were not. And Liddy manages you know, to get in some slander of Lennon, talking about how he was stoned all the time, which we've since found out is pretty much true that there was a lot of hard drugs involved uh, in John Lennon's life in this era. But when Lennon, what I was getting to next was Lennon, I think, referenced that they were being spied on when he was hosting the Dick Cavett show for a week with Yoko. And at the time, that was seen as complete crazy talk, was it not? I don't, I don't know how many, I don't know how many people picked up on it. Um, but it, I don't. I remember watching. I don't remember, you know, picking up on it. And it would have been. And yes, it would have been seen as crazy talk. Um, but it, it turned out it was true. He 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 was a target. He he because uh, you know, in in their in their wildest imaginations, it was like John Lennon's going to come out against us and sway young voters. And, and the reason that it was significant is it was 1972 was the first year that 18 year olds had the right to vote. So I was, I was going to get to vote for the first time. Otherwise I would have had to wait till the 76 election. So that's, that was their fear was that oh, my generation, the, 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 the middle of the baby boom was going to vote for who the Beatles told us to vote for. And, and you see that, you know, I think it was Reuben, it was either Reuben or Hoffman in the movie from footage of the time. That was the assumption on the left as well, that this wave of 18 to 21 year olds would come in and, and vote to the left. And instead, what we get is what we've seen in the 50 years since is the baby boomers vote to the right and always have and apparently always will. And this was one of the first elections where they did and they, you know, reelected Nixon resoundingly. And one thing that was interesting to me in the film was that the FBI, and we haven't even mentioned J. Edgar Hoover, who has been a villain in the Let It Roll series from his first appearance in 1919, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on through the harassment of the Weavers and Billie Holiday in the 50s. Um, and, and then, you know, the harassment of the black power and, and hippie peace movements in the 60s. They zero in on John Lennon. They decide because he had been busted, he and Yoko had been busted by uh, the infamous, I think his name was Norman Pilcher, who was a Scot uh, Scotland Yard Bobby, 
who arrested Donovan and Brian Jones and George Harrison and, and, you know, racked up this long, you know, I think he even got Paul McCartney eventually. And if he didn't find pot in the apartment, he would plant pot in the apartment. Eventually he went to prison for planting evidence, but Lennon had this pretty minor conviction of having pled guilty to a possession of a small amount of, I think, hashish, but that meant he was deportable. And even though like Keith Richards and Mick Jagger had similar um, convictions on their record, nobody's trying to deport Donovan in this period. They decide, you know, we're going to deport John Lennon because he's a troublemaker. Nixon wins his reelection and then has his own problems with the Watergate thing that leads to his resignation. The FBI kind of moves on to the next shiny object, but the INS is focused and they keep trying to deport John Lennon for several years. How does that go down and how did John and Yoko deal with that legally? Well, fortunately, they hired a great immigration attorney in Leon Wilds, who you know is a figure in our film. He, you know, he he knew how to deal with them. He he knew how to get the, whatever you know. The courts were not filled with justice in any sense of the word. Um, if you can hire great attorneys, you can make you can bend the law to your your way of, of living. And uh, in this case, John, John and Yoko were right. Um, so Leon became a, you know, a super advocate for them. And, and eventually the INS, I guess, got worn down by it and, and, and gave John his green card, which tragically um, meant he was in the United States to be murdered. Indeed, but like... And and you do kind of a swerve because you discussed how you had talked with Yoko about ending the movie with the green card. And if you end the movie with the green card, it's this beautiful day. It's John Lennon's birthday. I think it's 35th birthday. It's the day of the birth of Sean Ono Lennon. And John and Yoko had literally been trying to conceive a child since they had gotten together in 1968. And there there was a famous miscarriage, I want to say 1960, I, I guess 68. And, uh, you know, they had the breakup with the long weekend for 14 months. And so Sean Lennon being born and Yoko was 40 at the time, maybe even older, maybe 42. I think she was 42 at the time. So and, and you know, obstetrics was not quite where it is today. So that was a massive achievement to, to deliver a healthy baby boy uh, at that age. And John gets his green card. So it's this trifecta of good fortune. And there's these beautiful pictures of John holding the baby and just beaming. And, you know, as every Lennon fan knows, he spent the next five years baking bread and taking care of Sean and being a house husband while Yoko handled the family business and so on. Since then, we've learned that's not quite exactly what was happening, but that was part of what was happening. And so in a way, you could have ended this with a happy ending, but it, it goes from that moment to then shots ringing out. What was the decision making behind putting the killing and martyrdom at the end of the book, the movie, I mean? Well, it's, it's, it's a really good question. And fortunately, I have, I have a good explanation. So at that very first meeting, the agreement was the movie would end with John getting his green card. Um, we did uh, several interviews with Yoko um, in the course of production and never talked about anything after 1975. Um, 
we didn't talk about uh, you know Sean's birth or any anything like that. We just ended our conversations with um, John getting his green card. And from time to time, I would go back to New York and go to go to the Dakota and show Yoko a cut to get her her reaction. Uh, I think I think went back twice. And after the second time, um, again, Jonas, my my savior and right hand man, was was there um, at all these meetings. Um, after the second time uh, of seeing the movie, where it ends with John holding up the green card and that f- smile in the freeze frame, Yoko says, "Why is the movie ending here?" You haven't told the, you haven't you haven't told the rest of the story, and um, I I I said, well, that was our agreement that the movie would end with this, and and she turned to Jonas and she just kind of waved it off. She says, no, you have to tell the rest of the story, and I said, then we have to do another interview where we talk about what happened in in the five years after that, and she said, okay, so. Uh, came back to New York with with our our ACDP, and we we shot another another interview and that's that's why the movie goes another few minutes it it's it seems a little bit anticlimactic those those minutes or it seems at the time like wait a second the movie's supposed to end with him it's the u.s versus john lennon that battle is over john has won why are we telling this part of the story but as as yoko as yoko said no you have to you have to tell the whole story and indeed, I think it was a good choice. And let's hear our final song. This is uh, John Lennon from the live uh, Sometime in New York City album doing John Sinclair. And that was John Sinclair, the song that John Lennon wrote for the former manager of the MC5, who at the time was doing, I think, a 10-year prison sentence for uh, handing, not even selling, but handing an undercover agent to marijuana joints. Um, and, um, you know, that, that was part of the, the sort of simplistic sloganeering album that, that John did at this period. But the movie comes out, does quite well, makes tells the story, and... You know, I think the book, Give Me Some Truth, had established the facts, but this movie put it into the popular consciousness, exactly what G. Gordon Liddy and the Committee to Reelect the President and others had been doing to John Lennon. And I think that woke a lot of people up to the idea that, wow, if they could do this to John Lennon, they could do this to anybody. But that's also happening. The, Go ahead. The, the, the way I was selling it in meetings was because this is right after 9-11 and and they've done it they're, they're the dixie chicks have been told to shut up <laughs> eddie vetter has come out neil young has come out and there's a lot of backlash against these people and it's and so i'm saying to the to the studio execs this this is a, a, an allegory 
what happened to John Lennon in the 1970s is what's happening here in the 21st century. So it's actually a relevant story, even though it happened. And then I quoted the, you know, the famous quote, those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, I think, sadly, by the time I finished, uh, we finished making the film, I was like, I think we're just doomed to repeat history. We just don't seem to be able to learn from from what we do. Yeah, and the 15 years uh, since, my math might be wrong there, but in the decade and something since then, it seems like history is just repeating the third time as a farce. I think Mark said it was the second time as a farce. But at this point, yes. you know, after the Trump Clinton campaign and the and no, neither side of that to me looks good. The FBI apparently interfered in the election on both Trump and Clinton's behalf. And then again, uh, in the Biden uh, Trump election, do you feel like you were sweeping the ocean with a broom or uh, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> How you, do you, feel you about know, this film now? Uh, you know, I, I love it. I, I'm very proud of it. Um, you should I'm very be passionate. Uh, very, thank you. I'm very passionate about my work. Um, you know, it was the first time I'd really gotten a chance to to do a political film in, in uh, Beautiful Dreamer. There's there's a sequence um, where it talks about bad things happening in the wake of Brian Wilson shelving smile. And it shows the um, assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Bob Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and the election of Nixon. And I remember our executive in charge of production saying, are, are, you, are you saying the election of Nixon was a bad thing, uh, the equivalent to those assassinations? I said, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and so, but that was, you know, just, you know, a 20 second montage in, in, a, in a, an hour and 45 minute movie. This was a chance to really make a, 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 a big statement. Not that, not that I was looking to make a statement, but this was important to me. I, I had been, you know, and at Lafayette Park, across from the White House, with a friend from high school, to see Norman Mailer speak, and there were maybe sixty of us there. And, and in retrospect, I realize he was probably a little bit drunk. But the the D.C. riot police, uh, the Civil Disturbance Unit, it was called, and which had been established in the wake of the 1968 riots, came at us with clubs, and 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 I remember after we got safely back to our dorm going, I don't understand what's going on. We were peacefully assembled. He was exercising his you know, right of free speech. What is wrong? And, and it, it was kind of a, a series of wake up calls. And I feel like the John Lennon movie, uh, I, I, I teach a, a course called Docs That Rock, Docs That Matter at UCLA. I, I teach a course called The Real Beatles, R-E-E-L, where we look at a lot of, Beatles films and Beatle related documentaries. I feel like like this was my revenge against Richard Nixon. <laughs> and well landed. And uh, and you know, there's not much he can say to defend his shameful record on this count. And uh, yeah, David, to me, this story just so, gets to so many things that are long term issues on this show. First off, the consequences of the kind of fame that John Lennon cultivated and earned. But it comes at a price, and it comes at a price of being watched by not only fans, but people who are your enemies. And 
deranged fans too. In the Beatles case, you know, in the case of John and George were even worse than the government were their own deranged fans. And it also is a good case study in myth management. And, you know, Yoko Ono, I think is finally beginning to get the respect she deserves. I'm a fan of her music and her conceptual art. I realize I'm in a small minority there, but I think everyone can acknowledge that she has been an incredibly powerful and effective manager of John Lennon's image in the decades since his death and kind of co-captain along with, you know, uh, Stella McCartney and Danny Harrison and the other people that run the Beatles empire, that she's one of the most formidable figures in that very formidable empire and has done just such a conscientious job of, telling his story and defending his reputation. So, Debbie, what was the reaction to the film? Was there anything particularly gratifying or surprising that people said to you after you made the movie? Two great things. One was Michael Moore coming up to, to, to us at the, at the Toronto Film Festival and, and, and praising it, which meant a lot. I, I admire him so much. But, but the, 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 the funniest thing that happened was a friend of mine from New York called me after the film uh, was released, and he said, I hate you. Uh, I said, what did I do? And he said, I saw your film and you made me like Yoko Ono. (laughs) And that's a perfect note on which to end. Thanks so much, David. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Monday, Nate welcomes back Brooks Long to discuss the autobiography of Betty LeVette, co-written by David Ritz. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.